Are we giving the Lord Jesus our very best as we serve him? I'm thinking in particular of our involvement in ministry and in gospel work. Do we give him our very best, knowing that it is right and fitting, appropriate to his glory? Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And today we're picking up and continuing a message that we began last time called Doing the Work of the Lord. And Jonathan, as you pointed out, we have been given work to do. God has given each and every one of us work. Uh, But that is a great challenge, I think, for each and every one of us to consider, are we really giving the Lord our best? Then why is it so important to actually be honest in addressing that question? Well, I think it's such an important question, and I think this section of 1 Kings really pushes us to ask it and to consider it, because we're being drawn in here to see the process of the building of the great temple of God at Jerusalem. And as we look at the details of this, we see that no expense was spared. This was a truly glorious building, and it took the best of the nation, the best of the people, the best that Solomon could muster. Nothing was done by half measures. And as we look at that, we are prompted to consider this God is worthy. He's worthy of the very, very best. Nothing should be held back in his service. And as we see that picture and as we watch this story unfold, I think we must ask ourselves the question, are we treating God in the same way, with the same reverence and respect? It becomes very, very practical in terms of our our service of him within Christian ministry, our giving to gospel work with respect to our finances, the way in which we apply ourselves to the study and the teaching of his word as we have opportunity. I think it's a very, very searching question. It is a powerful question to think about, to ask yourself, and you uh, may or may not like the answer to that question, but that's where we're going to go today as we open up uh, our copy of God's Word to the book of 1 Kings. We're looking at chapters 5 through 7 as we continue the message, Doing the Work of the Lord. Here is Jonathan. The temple building project that God set before Solomon was a superhuman project. The building envisaged was absolutely massive in scale, grand in every way you can imagine. To construct such a building at this time in history with the tools and with the technology available at the time, with the resources on hand, it was a gargantuan undertaking. It seemed quite unrealistic. But what we see here in the story as the narrative unfolds is evidence after evidence after evidence that the Lord has made way for this, has provided for what he has commissioned. Just just notice with me some of the ways in which the Lord provides for this project. Foundationally and centrally, he provides by giving Solomon wisdom. This proves to be the key to everything. Remember that the Lord sort of offered Solomon really to give him anything he asked of him, and Solomon chose to ask for wisdom. That was a good request. The Lord granted his request in abundance. And so we finished the previous chapter, chapter 4, with this statement, verse 34. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. You know, we hear the word wisdom. We might think that this gift operates on some sort of esoteric level, Solomon understood grand ideas and was able to write a book of wisdom as a kind of philosopher, someone operating in a kind of ivory tower. Well, no doubt Solomon's wisdom enabled him to write down thoughtful proverbs, and we read those in the scriptures. But his wisdom, we discover, is immensely practical in nature. And we see that this gift of wisdom was absolutely key in enabling the building of the house. 
We're going to see that Solomon needed the help of the king of Tyre to get the house built. He needed the materials. He needed the labor force. But it was evidently the wisdom of Solomon that attracted the king of Tyre to participate. So there at the end of chapter 4, we read of how people from all over the world coming to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Kings are sending their delegations. And we ignore the chapter division for a moment because those aren't original to the text. This would have flowed right into the beginning of chapter 5. And what we find in the next sentence is that a delegation has come among these various delegations. One has come from Tyre. Verse 1. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. Solomon's fame has reached Tyre, and the delegation comes, and Solomon, in his wisdom, sees the key opportunity. Wisdom is running right through this. He sends words of greeting to the king. He makes this request, verse 6, Now therefore command that the cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. My servants will join your servants. I'll pay whatever wage you set. For you know there's no one among us who can cut timber like the Sidonians. In the wisdom that God gave Solomon, he, he sees an opportunity. He's shrewd to fulfill a need. He jumps on it. And the response is positive. As soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, who has given to David a wise son to be over his great people. He's impressed by Solomon's wisdom, and he's eager to enter into a deal. He sets terms. There is an agreement. All the timber that is needed is provided. The labor that's needed is provided. And again, it all flows from this gift of wisdom. Verse 12, it's highlighted once again for us. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. Solomon didn't have the resources in his kingdom to build the house. The cedar of Lebanon is the best cedar. The Sidonians know how to cut it like no one else knows how to cut it. How is the Lord going to provide? Well, he gives Solomon wisdom that makes him famous. People are coming from all over the world to hear his wisdom. The king of Tyre sends a delegation. Solomon and his wisdom sees opportunity. They make a deal. The king of Tyre is impressed by his wisdom. And suddenly there's timber and labor. Added to all that... The Lord gives Solomon a situation of peace that allows him to build. And again, this is the provision of God, and Solomon recognizes it. You, you can't undertake a major building project at home if you are fighting wars on every front or if there is unrest among your people. And Solomon rightly recognizes that the Lord has done something here. Verse 3, you know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. There's no way in which this project could be undertaken in a time of tension, civil unrest, or warfare. And no king can guarantee freedom from such things. Only God can provide it. God's provision for the project, it is comprehensive. He provided a context of peace, harmony at home and abroad. He provided Solomon with wisdom, attracted international attention, led to discussions with the king of Tyre and a favorable trade deal. As we'll see as we go on, he provides an outstanding craftsman to furnish the temple and so much more besides. And, and here's the point. If God wants something done, if he wants a kingdom initiative to move forward, here is the one thing you can be sure of. He will provide everything that is needed.
I was shopping around for some travel insurance the other day, and I found myself spending an inordinate amount of time reading the fine print for all the exclusions on the policies that I was looking at. The, the companies are quite good at advertising what they will cover. That tends to get onto the, you know, the front cover of the brochure. It's printed in bold and in, in, in glossy font and so on. But the exclusions to the policy, they are printed in microscopic font and run to many pages and pages at the back of the brochure. And by the time you read all the exclusions, you struggle to imagine a specific situation in which the insurance company would actually provide cover and make a payment for a claim. God's provision for his work, by utter contrast, is totally comprehensive. He provides all that's needed. Rarely does he do so in advance, by the way, from what I've noticed. Sometimes he does. But so often, it just unfolds as the project takes shape and moves forward. That was the case with Solomon, wasn't it? It unfolded as it happened, as the needs arose. And that's so often the way. It's, it's not all right in place, right from the start. A kingdom need, a kingdom opportunity becomes apparent, and things just unfold. The provision comes. And, and individual Christians, churches, ministry organizations each have stories to tell of this. You will have your own stories to tell of the Lord's provision, of how God has provided everything needed. And I would only say this, if God would call you, if he would call us to undertake work or projects or initiatives for the sake of the kingdom in the cause of the gospel, he will provide everything. That's just what he does. And he'll provide in a comprehensive way. The work of the Lord rests upon his provision. Next, the work of the Lord happens in his time. Chapter 6 and verse 1, do notice it with me. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. You and I live in an age when we are accustomed to instant results, instant gratification. If there's something you want, something you want done, something you want delivered, something you want streamed, something you want paid, something you want transferred, something you want communicated, there's almost certainly an app on your phone, and we would view it as something akin to a fundamental right to have our desire fulfilled instantaneously and without delay. We don't like to wait. In the 1970s in Britain, there was a credit card called the Access Card, now defunct, that had as its slogan, this was quite well known, it takes the waiting out of wanting. That was the slogan for the credit card. And it's quite a perceptive little slogan, actually. It taps into our desire for immediate results. And that's what credit cards can facilitate. They allow us to purchase things that perhaps we cannot yet afford, things we maybe shouldn't buy. But we love instant results. We hate waiting. And when it comes to the work of the Lord, we like to see things taking shape. We, we become quite easily discouraged if things don't take shape instantaneously, if plans don't come to fruition, if the mission work is slow on the fields, if the church growth is a little bit faltering, if the discipleship journey is a little bit bumpy, if the results aren't quickly visible and quantifiable. But it's good to remember God's work has often proceeded along a timetable, along a timescale that looks rather slow to our eyes. The building of the temple only began 480 years after the people of Israel left their bondage in Egypt. This statement here in chapter 6 and verse 1 actually echoes another time marker in the Bible. We won't turn to this, but it echoes the mention in Exodus 12 that the nation of Israel had spent 430 years in bondage in Egypt. 
So nation, they spent 430 years in bondage. The Lord took them out that he might settle them in their own land. But you remember, they, on their way out, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. That's quite a long time. And even once they got into their own land, it was now another 440 years, it turns out, before the temple was built. That is a long, long road, many lifetimes. And once Solomon gets to work, the temple isn't built in an instant. It's not like those new Amazon warehouses I see sprouting up all around us in our region. You, one day, you know, you see a site being cleared of trees. The next time you drive by, there's a five million square foot warehouse sitting there that you hadn't noticed being there before, buzzing with activity, trucks coming and going. No, this project took time. Notice with me, end of chapter 6, verse 37. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts and according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. The timeline we see here for the building of the house of the Lord in 1 Kings, it is rather sobering, I think. It is rather recalibrating. It resets our expectations. Once the people of God were out of Egypt, once they were into the promised land, it was still a long time we are seeing before they had a truly settled existence, a set place where they could worship the Lord, a fixed location for meeting with Him. God's work, it proceeds along God's timescale, and not according to ours. We, we long to see those immediate results. Of course we do. We long to get things done. We long to see a job completed, but God will not be rushed. I remember when I embarked on a new ministry project some time ago, and I was eager to see things take shape and get sorted out and build momentum, and an older saint came along and just commented to me quite casually as he sort of observed the scene. He said, I think it'll take you five years. And I thought to myself, five years? My goodness, I'll be practically retired or expired by then. Five years seems like such a long time. But of course, he was right. I, he was absolutely right. I wonder where it is that you need to recalibrate your expectations, where it is that you need to learn patience, learn God's timeline, learn to trust him while you wait upon him, learn faithfulness in serving as you slog along in the ordinary things, waiting for the Lord's timeline. The work of the Lord, it does happen in His time, according to His time scale, and we often need to learn that patience. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. Our message is called Doing the Work of the Lord, and it's part of our series called Days of Glory from the book of 1 Kings. Now, if you ever miss a program in the series, you can always come and you can listen at our website. The website address is EncounterTheTruth.org. You can also listen with the Encounter the Truth app, and that's a great way to listen on the go. Basically, it's listening on demand as it fits your schedule. The app is free, and you're going to find that at your favorite app store. Or, again, you can listen through our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, we're glad you've tuned in today. And if you ever want to find out more about this program and Jonathan, as well as get connected with our weekly devotional, I do hope you'll spend some time at the website. One last time, the website address is EncounterTheTruth.org. Back to the message. Here is Jonathan. Next, the work of the Lord requires obedience to His Word. 
This is a, a, quite a brief point, but so important. In the midst of chapter 6 in our passage, there comes a section, this is verses 11 to 13 that I want to highlight, which looks like an interruption to the building project. Scholars actually get quite excited about this and suggest that something strange has happened here. There's been a, an insertion in the editorial process. Maybe another author's come along and put something in. Uh, these verses are some kind of an addition, they suggest. It's such a change of gear that people trip over it. We've been looking at construction details, and we're about to return to construction details, but in the midst of it, we read this, verse 11. Now, the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Now, of course... The, the message from the Lord, this isn't misplaced. It's exactly where it, it should be. You see, in the midst of kingdom activity, a frenetic service of the Lord, the greatest danger we will probably face is this. It is the danger that we will ignore our personal obedience to his word. You see, we'll substitute holiness for hard work. We'll pursue a project goal in place of personal godliness. And we'll think that that's all kind of okay in some way because we are just doing so much for the Lord. I think that's a tremendous danger. That was clearly Solomon's danger. His life was incredibly fruitful, but we're going to discover tragically at the end it was not faithful. And here in the midst of frenetic activity, God sets down a marker. Faithfulness matters. Godliness matters. Obedience from the heart matters. And so, friend, let me ask, where are you in danger? Where am I of giving yourself a pass on godliness and obedience because you are just so busy in Christian service? Just watch out. Just be careful. Busy Christian service never stopped anyone from falling into disobedience and sin. It didn't stop Solomon, and it won't necessarily stop you or stop me. The Lord's work requires obedience to his word. And, and finally, the Lord's work must reflect his glory. It would take more time than we have available to consider all the details of the construction and the furnishings here. But I think the main impression we are meant to take away is of a building of very grand proportions, made of the finest materials, furnished in splendor and with meticulous detail. The temple was built to be the finest building of the ancient world, the grandest construction project ever undertaken. Just notice with me a portion of the description. Uh, chapter 6, starting from verse 14. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress, down to verse 18. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers, all with cedar, no stone was seen, down to verse 21. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. And also the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. That's the building, splendid. Next come the furnishings and fittings. It will take a, a skilled craftsman 
especially gifted, to make all that's needed to furnish the house of the Lord. And for this, Solomon turns to another man named Hiram of Tyre. Actually, this isn't the king of chapter 5, but a craftsman from that same country. Notice with me chapter 7 and verse 13. And King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker of bronze. And he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all his work. Now, if you've ever had to try and find a craftsman to work on a special project, perhaps in your home, if you've ever had to recruit a skilled employee for a project, you will know it's one thing to have the resources, the money for a project. It's quite another thing to find the right person to carry out the work. A skilled worker, a fine craftsman, such a person can be a true rarity. But again, actually, the Lord has provided here. And look at all the things that this craftsman builds for the house. Two great pillars of bronze, verse 15. A sea of cast metal, verse 23, with gourds all around set on oxen, shaped like a lily. Ten stands of bronze, verse 27, all very intricate. Ten basins of bronze, verse 38, all the pots, shovels, basins, and vessels in the house. It's all beautiful. It's all detailed work, fine craftsmanship. But the bronze will not be the pinnacle of the furnishings of the house of the Lord. No, the description actually finishes with more gold, yet more gold. Just notice it with me, chapter 7, verse 48. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table for the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, then cups and basins and dishes, all of pure gold. My wife's uh, grandfather, great-grandfather was something of a collector, I understand. And at some point, he acquired a beautiful uh, set of plates and dishes that first belonged to King George IV of England, a king who was known, if you know your English history, a king who was known for his very extravagant tastes two centuries ago. And this china, it is quite striking, ornate in design with gilt edges and so on. We're rather hesitant to actually use it for anything for fear of breaking. I think we did serve the children Christmas lunch on it once. Huh. Uh, we've still got all of them. It certainly was fit for an English king in his day. But, you know, as we look at those and then compare them to what's described here, well, they're nothing compared to what Solomon commissioned for the house of the Lord. Pretty much everything was pure gold. It, it had to be the very best that this earth could afford. And this commitment to the very highest quality and materials, to fine craftsmanship, to beauty and elegance, it's entirely fitting. It's never questioned within these chapters of 1 Kings. This is the house of the Lord, as we are told again and again and again within the text. And so rightly, all that is done here reflects his character and his glory. I was chatting with a member of our staff the other day, and he was saying to me how he was working really quite hard to get something right, to work out the details of something for the ministry. And he said to me as we were talking, it was kind of a throwaway comment, but he said to me, you know, this, just, this has to be perfect. It's for the Lord. It was a quick comment, but it carried so much significance for me as I heard him say it. You see, for this brother, he wanted his work to be the very best it could possibly be. And the reason in his heart was simple. It was for the Lord. And I, I just wonder, I wonder if you and I see things that way as we serve the Lord together. Not that we sort of beat ourselves up to make everything absolutely perfect. Nothing is perfect in this fallen world. But are we giving the Lord Jesus our very best 
as we serve him, as we do the work of the kingdom? Does our, does our service of him, and I'm thinking here especially of our gospel service, obviously all we do as Christian disciples is to serve the Lord, but I'm, I'm thinking in particular of our involvement in ministry and in gospel work. Do we give him our very best, the best of our time, the best of our treasure, the best of our talent, knowing that it is right and fitting, appropriate to his glory? Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth, wrapping up our message, Doing the Work of the Lord. Well, I have a question for you. What are the marks of a supernaturally changed heart? You know, that is a question that the Apostle Paul addressed when he wrote to the church in Corinth. And he wasn't after some superficial outward tinkering, but he was talking about a deep-rooted, life-altering change, a change that takes place on the inside. You know, in an age where pleasing people and puffing up your ego and building a resume are seen as methods of making it, the Apostle Paul calls us to find true rest and blessed self-forgetfulness. And Pastor Tim Keller has written about this in a book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's about the path to true Christian joy. We'd love to send you a copy of this book as our way of saying thank you for your financial support. Being a listener-supported program, we do depend on your generosity to keep Jonathan's teaching on this station. But again, for your gift of any amount, we want to send you this book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 833-998-7884 or EncounterTheTruth.org. For Jonathan Griffiths, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.